Hi, this is Chase Masterson, and you're listening to PriorityOnePodcast.com. This episode of Priority One is brought to you by Sayulita.com. For more information, visit Sayulita.com and by listeners like you. Visit PriorityOnePodcast.com for more information on how you can continue to support our network. Command codes verified. Priority One message from Starfleet coming in on secure channel. Hello, Captains. You're listening to episode 167 of Priority One Podcast, the premier Star Trek online podcast, recorded Thursday, March 27th, 2014, and available for download or streaming on Monday, March 31st at PriorityOnePodcast.com. I'm Elijah. I'm Cookie. And I'm Jace. Well, Jace, tell us what we have in store this week. Captains, this week we trek out some ideas for Star Trek on the small screen. Then we check out the latest Stowe news with more news about the Undine, changes to the reputation system, and other changes already trickling into Tribble. Later, Chivalry Bean brings us his latest Foundry Officer's report in our Community Spotlight segment of the show. And of course, as always, we'll open hailing frequencies and see what's incoming from you, our listeners. Captains, we want to thank you for your ongoing support of Priority One Podcast. You can continue to support Priority One with real-world donations by helping us reach our monthly financial goals. We are all volunteers, and we could use your help with purchasing new equipment, hosting fees, or to alleviate travel expenses when we cover conventions on location throughout the year. Captains, don't forget that PriorityOnePodcast.com offers more than just podcasts. This week, we welcome a new contributor to the Priority One blog team, Wesley Garris. In his first installment of Subspace Communique, Mr. Garris introduces himself to the community and teases what readers can expect to see in future editions. Wesley is a dedicated player with a lot to offer the community. We welcome him to the Priority One team. Check out his blog and more only on PriorityOnePodcast.com. And lastly, Captains, before we move on with the show, we invite you to keep an eye on our social media platforms like Facebook.com forward slash Priority One Podcast. We're on Twitter at STO Priority One. We're hoping that every Sunday evening around 9 p.m. Eastern Time, we'll be taking to twitch.tv for live playthroughs of Star Trek Online, hosted by the cast and crew of Priority One Podcast and the Priority One Fleet. Subscribe to our channel at twitch.tv forward slash Priority One. Well, Captains, let's trek out some ideas for bringing Star Trek back to the small screen. Jim, what places? I don't know. Then let's trek it out. In an article written by Walter Hudson at PJMedia.com, Walter comes up with some practical ideas to get a Star Trek series on television again. Now, the last time Star Trek was on TV was in May of 2005 with the cancellation of Star Trek Enterprise. But since then, no one has been able to successfully bring Star Trek back to its television home. Walter writes, In the last eight years, there hasn't even been any serious attempts to put Star Trek back on the air. 
and everyone seems entirely focused on the movies. This is a horrible mistake. At its core, Star Trek is a television series. Now, for me personally, I was glad to see new content with the latest feature films by J.J. Abrams. I know not everyone agrees with me on that, but I think we can all agree that Star Trek does need to make a comeback on television. We want Star Trek back. It started on television, and I think that it is where most people fell in love with it in the first place. But how? How do we get Star Trek back into our living rooms? Well, this article lists seven ideas, specifically ways that are new and different, yet still progressing from what we have seen in the past. So let's explore these suggestions, starting with number seven, the Galactic Order. Instead of focusing on one ship and one crew, how about pushing the envelope further and focusing on the entire galactic civilization? With many quadrants already explored and advanced technologies achieved, discovering new galaxies is even more possible than ever before. And with that, conflicts and power struggles can emerge. Questions arise. Will the Federation still be able to maintain the Prime Directive? Or will it adopt new rules and new philosophies? Star Trek has always brought up issues that translate and apply to current events in our lives today. And this would maintain that tradition while adding new, unexplored content. Well, Captains, the article is very detailed and goes into some amazing ideas and proposals for a new television series. So out of the seven, we decided to choose our personal favorites. My personal favorite is number four bullet point, which is space, disease, and danger wrapped in darkness and silence. Remember how paranoid Dr. McCoy was always about all the different dangers lurking out there in the depths of space? Well, there is something to be explored there. And I have a feeling we haven't even scratched the surface. One of the biggest dangers so far has been the Borg Collective, for instance. They were unlike any other enemy the Federation had encountered up till that point. And they weren't just, you know, a shoot, shoot, bang, bang, kill type of enemy. They adapted. They assimilated. They took your individuality, your existence, your independent thought, and replaced it with the collective hive mind conformity. And who wants that? No amount of diplomacy could have made a dent in their ultimate goal. Although Janeway did try when they fought the Undine. And, but there's all that. But I'm sure there's a new enemy, one that would shake the core of the Federation and, and make it reevaluate its morals of right and wrong. Perhaps turn the Prime Directive on its side or on its face and form unlikely alliances. What if Star Trek explored new dangers that we have never seen before? I would love for them to reimagine the Borg. I really would. I would like a Borg reboot. Yeah, I think you're not alone in that. They've lost a bit of their luster. Not just in Star Trek Online either, but if they were to do a new movie, let it be about first encounter with the Borg. And we see this new enemy rise and have it re-inject that overpowering, resistance is futile feeling that you first felt during The Next Generation. How about you, Jace? What's your favorite of the list? My favorite is number two, which they nicknamed the Weimar Federation. I've been kind of in a World War One buff kind of mode with the centennial anniversary of it this year. So Star Trek Online right now takes place decades after Next Generation. We have war between the Federation and the Klingons. And in this case, lots of other species have all taken sides. So what if we had a new series in the aftermath of this? The Federation having escaped disaster from the Undine and the Iconians and the Tholians and the Klingon War. And now we're trying to regain peace in the galaxy. We don't know if it'll last we're still vulnerable from a devastating war and subject to the possibility of corrupting influences. Not so much like shapeshifters and infiltrators now, but actual internal struggles. 
not to do away with the utopian ideals, but again, to challenge it and taking it for a new generation. Who's to blame for the war? Can we still manage the prime directive with so many forces now in the galaxy equal to or even greater than the Federation? Can Starfleet be trusted after some of the actions of Section 31 come to light that we've even played through in the game? This perspective would take some ideas from STO and develop and expand on aspects of its storyline. That's a good idea. I would love to see this utopian society really brought to its knees. Something like that could make a really good space opera back on television. It's hard. When you've had shows like Battlestar Galactica, you know, really set the bar for a space opera, those are some big shoes to fill. And I would love for that to be the direction that Star Trek takes. The boots on the ground depiction of the Federation. We saw a little bit of that in Deep Space Nine, but mm -hmm. not enough. I think that they, they just didn't take enough risks. I want risks to be taken with Star Trek on the small screen. All right, Cookie, how about you? What's your favorite? Mine was number five, Rise of the Sun. Data, played by Brent Spiner, is one of my favorite characters out of the entire Star Trek franchise. He was unique and complex, yet his innocence and simplicity captured the hearts of many. I think a lot of people were upset when, spoiler alert, when he sacrificed his life in Star Trek Nemesis. But we all kind of knew it couldn't last forever. Brent Spiner cannot stay the same age and continue to portray an android. I know technically they could have gotten around that with B4 or used the same technology that aged Data's android mother, but alas, that chapter of Star Trek ended when Data died. But what if there was a new android, or an entire race of androids inspired by Data's model? We know this idea was attempted in Measure of a Man, and later Data himself created Lal, his android daughter, but what if someone were to succeed in making a race of androids? This article suggests the name of the race should be named after the cyberneticist Dr. Noonien Sung, and I tend to agree. It would be kind of nice if Brent Spiner could play a long-lost descendant of Dr. Sung, wouldn't it? But would some of the same issues that were brought up in The Measure of a Man be called into question again? Would these androids have rights? Would their slavery be inevitable? Would they be fully functional? These are some questions that would have to be considered and developed if Star Trek explored this subject. Data actually was always my favorite character growing up watching Next Generation, so I'm always fascinated by anything they want to do with the androids, some type or otherwise. And it's actually one of the things that makes me want to get into Voyager, which I only ever saw a few scattered episodes of because of some of the same issues with the holographic doctor. So I think this sort of concept is a great one in the classic vein of sci-fi issues. Actually, I think at this stage, a not-for-kids primarily animated series wouldn't be out of the question. I mean, obviously, I'm not talking about something along the lines of the Filmation series from the 70s, although it had its moments. But there's something to be said for storytelling that can be done in animation nowadays. Look at DC. DC's using all the animated And some of those films are amazing, mm -hmm. those, the DC films coming out, the Justice League and the Superman and then the Batman films. Things that we would love to see translated into real-life filmmaking, but... They're still great. And Star Wars has their animated series. Every year there's a new animated series for Star Wars. And I think therein lies the problem with Star Trek is that there is way too much red tape. If you recall our conversation, for instance, with Alec Peters, who once worked as an archivist for Star Trek, to get Star Trek moving requires a massive amount of effort. And I'm starting to believe that Star Trek is drowning under the weight of its own licensing which in turn is keeping the fans from seeing Star Trek the way they want to see it, back on the small screen with new stories and new characters and a reimagined Final Frontier. So 
something's got to be done about this whole licensing thing. But, you know, part of it being with CBS television and another part of it being with Paramount and one can't do one thing because the other one's doing it. Just it, it needs to all just get in one spot. Yeah, mm-hmm. I agree. It's it's just like what Marvel's going through with its movie universe, not being able to use X-Men and Spider-Man because they're licensed out. The licensing makes a mess of these franchises sometimes for the fans. Captains, we received so much positive feedback about your excitement over the independent film project Star Trek Axanar that we've re-invited Axanar's creator Alec Peters and director Christian Gossett on for a short update since our last interview. A lot has happened since our first meeting in the early weeks of March. Thank you both for joining us here on Priority One Podcast again this week. You're very welcome. Pleasure to be here again. For starters, your Kickstarter campaign for the introductory feature at Prelude to Axanar exploded literally overnight, hitting its base goal in just seven hours. And now, with only 45 hours left at the time of this interview, you've already reached over 1,400 backers who have pledged over $68,000. So congratulations on the astounding and astonishing Kickstarter success. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thanks. We're so excited. First, Alec, I would like to ask you, would you please remind our listeners what Prelude to Axanar is in comparison to the larger planned project of Star Trek Axanar? So Prelude to Axanar is a short film that is going to give viewers a whole history of the the Four Years' War that leads up to the Battle of Axanar, which we will feature in in Star Trek Axanar itself. So it's, it's a short film, and it really came about as we knew that we needed some sort of really impressive Kickstarter video in order to raise the $250,000 we're going to need to raise for Axanar. And taking a cue from Star Trek Renegades, which raised uh, a total of $374,000 between Kickstarter and Indiegogo, and they did it all on a, having one short little trailer with Walter Koenig as Chekhov and Tim Russ as Tuvok. So we knew we needed something to make an impact and something that people could see right off the bat. We've got real serious actors. We've got a great story. And so rather than making a little 60-second trailer, I was just thinking of things to do. And I just hit upon this idea of doing a History Channel special about the war. Just like you see, uh, you know, you go on the History Channel special, watch a Battle of Stalingrad or the Battle of Midway or whatever. And you see all the, the, the participants talking in retrospectively about their personal experiences and, and what it meant to them. And so I pitched Christian, and he loved the idea, and I wrote the script, and we're working away on that, and that's what the Kickstarter was for. The budget was $20,000, which means you have to raise a twenty-eight because there's about 30% goes to expenses between Kickstarter fees, Amazon payment fees. We knew that we needed to raise about $28,000, and we got that in three days. So uh, after that, it was all gravy, and for us, that means paying expenses that we need for Axonar itself. So we're really past paying for Prelude after we had about you know $30,000, and we're into paying for Axonar itself, paying for the costuming. We're starting to line up all the expenses that we need to pay. We had a meeting with Makeup Effects Lab this week, going over the makeup for Richard Hatch's Karn and for uh, Gary Grima Saval. The makeup co- is going to cost us more than we thought it would. Even for Prelude, we have to do the full-on development of the makeup and the hair for both those characters even though they're only going to be on screen for a couple minutes. So basically we've shifted that expense from the Axonar budget into the Prelude budget. So the makeup, which I originally had budget 5000 for, is going to cost us twice that, ten. But the nice thing is it's going to cost us $5,000 less in Axonar. So again, treating this as 
you know, all the overflow from this budget goes to Axonar, we're able to pay for expenses that we know we're going to be uh, facing on Axonar itself. So that's where the money goes. And we tell you on our Kickstarter where the money goes. As a matter of fact, in today's update, I let everyone know that once the budget is complete for Prelude to Axonar, I'll be sending it to all the donors so they see exactly where the money's going. Amazing. Amazing. That's fantastic. Now, Mr. Gossett, would you tell us a little bit about yourself, your involvement with Axonar, your history a little bit? Uh, sure. Um, I began in concept design, really. I was hired by uh, Lucasfilm Licensing and Dark Horse to work on Tales of the Jedi back in the uh, early 90s. That was uh, the first look that anybody had had into the Old Republic, and I mean the Old Republic, 4,000 years before the time of Luke Skywalker, for which Lucasfilm Licensing had no concept art. So I was the first artist hired to retro-design the Star Wars galaxy, which uh, has been wonderful in that experience, of course. It has helped me my entire career, but when you're going back 20 years before Kirk, it's a fun thing to do. I, I like retro design. It's a, it's a specialty of mine, and I really like doing it. After that, I started my own graphic novel series, uh, The Red Star. We've sold over a million units worldwide. We're in five languages. Uh, six, if you count the pirated Russian versions, which I have no problem with. It's a Russian story. They should, <laughs> And I know that Russian publishing works that way. It's really a, a compliment coming from the Russian market that they pirate your stuff. And we've had a video game on PS2. We're currently on the PSN network with the Red Star. And uh, we've been in development at Universal and at Warner Brothers as features. And now I'm really excited to say that the Red Star is in development with uh, no less than Ashley Miller and Zach Stentz, the writers of Thor, the movie Thor, and X-Men First Class uh, for Fox. Phenomenal. Now, you mentioned in brevity there the concept for 20 years before Kirk. So what vision do you have for the project? Uh, the vision is to not do what Enterprise did, really. We're 20 years before Kirk, so we're long after Archer. What I wanted to do was stay true to the TOS vision of the future. The original series now, now that we're in 2014, the original series represents an alternative history of the planet Earth. And so I wanted to stay within that alternative history. So much of what the original series did was phenomenal in that, you know, we now have personal communicators. We all have uh, tablets in the form of the tricorder, in the form of the pad. We have things like that now. If you've read uh, Isaacson's biography on Jobs, Jobs was obsessed with uh, rounded rectangles. And if you look on the bridge of the Enterprise, it's a lot of rounded rectangles. If I'm, I'm on a laptop on a MacBook Pro right now, and it's rounded rectangles. So Star Trek, in many design features, knew where the future was going. And so I like that vision of the future. And I want to just take it 20 years back so there'll be really cool things that are different, and yet at the same time will very much be in alignment with the mythology from that show. So we're not looking at a recreation of what we have already seen on screen from the original series, but as you've mentioned, a, a modern take on it. Yeah, so we're not yeah, going to be seeing the red dials, the, you know, the very simple red dials with the lighting and the greens and the reds, because there's that fear that it would be taken into that JJ Apple store kind of environment. Yeah, no, we are completely JJ's universe kind of begins at the Narada and, and with the Kelvin and it goes off on its own. I'm ignoring that place. We are 20 years before that, before Kirk and before where JJ takes off from. That's its own thing. It's fine for those people that enjoy those films and that look, but that's one way to go. Uh, you know, Marvel is proving these days that they're like, look, here's Spider-Man in this incarnation. Don't worry. Ten years later, it'll be a new kid. And ten years after that, it'll be a new kid. And ten years after that, it'll be someone else. And that's been amazing that they've been able to bring that from the comic book world where if you don't like, you know, Frank Miller's Daredevil, don't worry. It's going to be someone else's Daredevil. Um, artists have become the custodians of these franchises. And so lots of crazy things and divergent things can happen uh, within them that are still canon. So we're going ahead and saying, look, we love TOS. We love the work of Roddenberry. We love uh, Shatner and Nimoy and DeForest Kelly. 
and uh, we want to stay there in that cozy, wonderful place, but make it a little bit tougher and add the modern sensibility so that it is so that it does speak to a modern audience. So we're taking what we love about the old show, and we are kind of dismissing what really were just artifacts of a crew working with very little time and very little money on a television show on a weekly basis. Um, that's really the stuff that you don't like about TOS is most likely an, a result of what that crew just couldn't get to because they were working so hard to do what they were doing. So that's the kind of stuff we dismiss and we take the wonderful stuff they were able to accomplish. So you already spoke a little bit about this, but it, can you add a little to what you are doing to prepare? You know, what, do you, what are you looking at? What are you comparing? Where are you drawing inspiration from? I'm glad you asked that because I'm a, a big believer in preparation. My success in designing the Old Republic for Star Wars came from preparation. When I was told by licensing that they didn't have any designs for the Old Republic, I was like, really? You, are you telling me at 22 years old that I have a blank canvas in the Star Wars galaxy? Well, okay, well, I'm going to run with it. So I went to straight to the sources of George Lucas. He cited Kurosawa. He, he cited Joseph Campbell. He cited Flash Gordon. And I threw myself into knowing as much as I could about those influences and I worked from there. I worked from the same sources that the originating creator was working from and I went to what he liked from them and I saw what he pulled from them and what he ignored. What did he love about feudal Japan as portrayed by Kurosawa? What did he not like? What did he like from Flash Gordon? Some of the examples are incredibly explicit. They're very, very clear. Some of them are more inspirational and interesting and under the, under the surface. When you put these together, you can do amazing work in reimagining any kind of franchise. So that's the kind of work I did then. That's the kind of work I'm doing now. The original series, for me, the, the life of Gene Roddenberry is fascinating. He was a B-17 pilot in World War II. That says so much about the formation of the original series and why Kirk is who he is and why the adventures on Star Trek play the way they do. They are informed by no less than the wartime anecdotes of someone who survived a bloody conflict that redefined human history as we know it. So that you, you can't ignore that. These are the kinds of levels of, of study that go into it. As well as I, I know a lot about the Soviet Union and Russia, the history of them. I'm an avid military historian. So I um, am bringing all that stuff into what is leadership like uh, across. What is a Klingon culture like? Well, how do we find it? Well, look at imperial cultures. Find out how they conducted war. What can we take from that? Um, and, and then to be less, uh, less deep than that, and more technical. I have an animation background. I've directed hours and hours of animation on video games uh, and directed a few live action uh, pieces and worked on concept design from, from very small things to very big things. I had the good fortune to work at What a Workshop in New Zealand on King Kong, as well as Tim Burton's Alice in Wonderland. So I've seen the best do what they do. And I've seen everybody uh, from there to small productions do what they do. And uh, creating a complete look for viewers is really what it's all about. So lots of storyboards. We'll be working from a story reel storyboard perspective. So everything will be storyboarded and then the storyboards will be put on an editing timeline so that we can work out the timing. The roles will be uh, tested in that way. The time will be tested. The directing will be tested. Not that you overplan. There's no such thing as overplanning. It sounds like this is in fantastic hands. So Thank that's you. very exciting. Very, very exciting. So with the Kickstarter now complete, by the time this podcast is published, what's next for Axonar? Well, if you were a donor in our Kickstarter, you've probably gotten a link to BackerKit, which is kind of like the back-end functionality that allows us to manage all the processing of the donations and fulfillment of all the perks and everything like that. Um, so that's it. We want to make sure that over the next uh, couple months we get all our donors, everything that they've donated for. We will be shooting Prelude to Axanar May 4th and May 8th. 
and we will be premiering it at FedCon Germany May 29th to June 1st. So yeah, so that's kind of the short-term plan. At that point, Prelude to Axonar has always been our kind of glorified Kickstarter video because Axonar has a budget of a quarter million dollars. So we have to raise big bucks for that. So that's why we're doing Prelude to Axonar. So after Prelude to Axonar is released, we will then be starting our main Kickstarter. We are unsure at this moment if we are going to separate the building of the sets, meaning doing a Kickstarter just for the um, amount of, uh, that it will cost us to build the sets, which we estimate as fifty dollars to $80,000, or if we'll just have one big Kickstarter. We're not quite sure of that yet. But uh, we will start our next Kickstarter, and uh, having proven to everyone what amazing filmmakers we are uh, and how cool a project Axonar is, um, we're, you know, we feel real confident we'll be able to expand beyond the 1,500-plus donors that we've gotten so far and uh, really start making a better penetration of the market to more Star Trek fans who can get us the money we need to make Axonar. With this first Kickstarter project, do you have any concern that perhaps another Kickstarter would find it more difficult for people to return and pledge more money? I'm not worried about it particularly because people are going to be so impressed by what we did uh, with Prelude to Axonar that I feel real confident we're going to be able to raise the main money that we need for Axonar itself. I think so too. I mean, the just the stir over Prelude to Axonar and the excitement that our community has and our listener base has expressed, I'm sure that once they see Prelude to Axonar, they're just going to be opening up my wallets and say, here, take my money. Especially that, as you mentioned, that transparency also helps. It does build that trust. It does build that community where people feel that they are invested in something that is going to be fantastic. And everything that you have already produced and released is, uh, has really just created a, a really strong buzz throughout the community. Well, thanks. I mean, that, that warms our hearts. I got to say, uh, you know, that's what we want. We're fans. I mean, we're just like you guys, right? We're just um, in the filmmaking industry. And, and so our, our, our goals are a little different. As I always say, everyone does different things in, in fandom, but we're all fans and we all love the same thing and want to see. I mean, I work on Star Trek Phase 2 as a producer, you know, because they need that kind of help. And I love doing that. Our post-production supervisor for Axonar, Mark Edward Lewis, he and I did all the post-production on Katumba, their latest episode, and got that out for them because they needed the help. So when the fans, you know, say to us, we like what you're doing, your peers, that's the people that we're trying to please. Wonderful. Well, Mr. Peters, Mr. Gossett, thank you so very much for joining us again this week on Priority One Podcast. Our plans are to have you on uh, periodically here and on a regular basis to give us updates on Star Trek Axonar. Thanks, Elijah. Absolutely. We'd love to do it. Discover something that you think the rest of our listeners would enjoy hearing about? Send them over to us via incoming at PriorityOnePodcast.com. Let's check out what happened in Star Trek Online News. Computer status report. Status. Incoming message. I'm only in the mood for good news today. In Season 9, Dev Blog Number 4, Jeff Adjudicator Hawk Hamilton writes about the Undine Art revamp and Critter System changes. They're reintroducing a new improved version of the Undine, or Species 8472, for purists. You probably noticed their bodies were not as detailed and somewhat blurry as far as their textures, but the new version is going to be sharper and more detailed. I don't know if anyone has had a chance to look, but there are before and after pictures on the blog if you want to see the difference. It definitely has more clarity and you can see even their veins. They have also decided to take a second look at the Undine armor. 
They felt the current armor was too thick and heavy and didn't quite harmonize with the agile maneuverability of the Undine. And for those of you who wonder why armor is even needed, they are preserving it because it helps to distinguish the different ranks quickly and easily. Which, for example, could be helpful when you are in Starbase Incursion and you quickly need to target the Captain, who would have a full set of armor, belt, chest gear, boots, etc., versus an Ensign or another lower-ranking Undine who would be wearing significantly less armor or none at all and could even be tinted a different color. So, Captains, before you go crazy saying, The Undine didn't have armor, my immersion! We have to remember that this game is also for non-Star Trek players, and so there are certain game mechanics and tropes that developers have to inject into the game to make it more accessible and easier for the less Star Trek-versed player. So, in order to be as accurate as possible, they combed through all the examples from the shows and put together a new and improved look for the Undine. They focused a lot on biotech and combining the feeling of technology with natural organic shapes and surfaces. They included a picture of this in the dev blog with the different stages of development. The final version is very sleek and beautiful, but at the same time very high-tech and durable. They even implemented a way to highlight the Undine's psychic abilities with the glowing optic cables attached to their temples, which enhances this natural ability. As far as the ground critter updates, they wanted to simplify it, modernize it, and, and clean it up. From the noisy visual effects sounds to redundant powers, for instance, claw swipe attacks have been removed and, and visual language has also been improved. Their ground powers have been split up so that each critter will either use weapons, which you'll be able to tell because they'll either have it as a wrist gun or a wrist blades, or they have the optic cables that Cookie was talking about, which will enhance their psionic powers. So you're going to want to be careful because there's not much out there that offers defense to psionic powers. The anti-proton bolts have also been replaced by an Undine unique energy beam. The boss has a wrist-mounted mini-planet killer. So it will be interesting to see how much damage this particular ground weapon does on players. Their self-heals have been removed and they also have no shields, but... To make up for that, they all have a passive regeneration effect, which makes them more resilient. So if you and your team focus your attack on one enemy at a time, it should maximize your effect. So, more team collaboration is required. Captains, more and more. We're seeing more and more of this. I'm so excited. I did not write that. Somebody I don't remember if I wrote OMG. There. I may have written OMG and I don't remember. <laughs> also, another tip is to use weapons that are good against hit points instead of shield damage, since they don't have shields. Now, for the space critter updates, they wanted it to feel like it did in Voyager, with updated ship models more in line with what has been seen in the show, similar to what they did with the Hyrogen ships recently. They've made a sweep over all the ships and have now included a new planet killer ship that has a chance of spawning during an encounter. To help drive home the fact that Undine are masters of fluidic space, Undine cruisers can now open and enter a rift and later appear randomly through another rift, like a subspace jump. An interesting, cool new feature is that a battleship can open a fluidic space rift that, like a gravity well, will slow you down, pull you in, and then debuff you if you get immersed in it. A lot of changes are happening for the Undine. They seem to be leaning more and more, like Elijah said, towards developing team strategies in STO. Uh, for example, I know that some of the ships have massive frontal attacks, but kind of like the Doomsday Weapon are only vulnerable from the front, which leads to in more interesting strategies. 
So these changes are certainly welcomed. I mean, I love the idea of having to collaborate more with your teammates, but is that going to be a problem? Yes. I mean, we have we have new missions like the Mirror Invasion event. We have the Voss Space event like the Breach that requires players to split up and collaborate efforts and talk to one another. Now, the Undine defenses may need specialized focus fire to take down a ship or a ground enemy. So wh- how do you think this is going to affect pugs? Anytime that you have to communicate with your team and work together, it's going to go badly. <laughs> That's what I think, because... I've had to do that with the mirror event, and it, it doesn't really go well when, if you don't have a prearranged team that communicates. I just don't. I don't think it. No. Mm-mm. Nope. See, I'm glad that we're seeing more challenges because on the flip side of that, well-organized teams f- have found most of the existing content, other than maybe no-win scenario, and for other reasons like some bugs that previously existed into the hive, trivial. I mean, everything else we just blow through and see how fast we can do it. I mean, my infected runs now are sometimes under three minutes. I know there's people who can do it in a minute. Having some more challenging events, I think, is necessary for the game. And there's just going to be a learning curve where people realize they have to step it up a little bit if they want to do these newer STFs or PVEQs. I have a feeling the community is going to hate it. And the reason being is that unlike other MMOs where being in a team is its definition, being a part of a team and having to collaborate, Star Trek Online has been very much a, okay, I could pug, get through this. It may be a little painful, but I'll get through it, right? Like like an infected space elite, like you mentioned. Now we're getting content that is creeping into, okay, pugs, they may not cut it anymore. Now we may need to collaborate we may need to talk we may have to use the team channel oh god no a bunch of people have that turned off either that or they ignore me every time so it's it's going to be interesting i think that for players that uh have been in the game for a while that that are part of a fleet that already have a rapport with other players a play style this won't phase them very much but for that lone wolf player like James, right? For instance, I like talking about James behind his back when he's not here. <laughs> um, he'll never like find out. Wolf, he'll never find out. He won't <laughs> listen to this show. <laughs> uh, like the lone wolf James, you know, that likes to kind of get in the game and, and play by himself. He's going to hate this stuff. He's really going to because it's going to, he's going to say, well, I don't have time to have to collaborate. I like it. I welcome it, right? Because I like to wow, socialize when I engage. like him. Quite. <laughs> Quite honestly, sometimes I won't, I'll log into the game and if nobody replies or if nobody's on to do something, I'll log back out because I don't like playing by myself. I like to be a part of a team and I like to do things with other people. I may take care of some you know, reputation or whatnot, but I wouldn't run a mission in a pug. I just wouldn't. See, that's I, what I need to just start doing. See, I've done a couple pugs for Mirror that. just because of time constraints and already being right. behind on the event progress. And I think, I mean, I've done them on Normal and on Elite. I think... As long as the devs are mindful that pugs who have trouble coordinating as a team are still able to muddle through normal, it's okay if Elite is almost unpuggable. Right. Because you can that's, still get yeah, the that's rewards. A good point. Right. That's a good point. I think that, uh, yeah, that's that's a really good point to make and, and that the Elites really should be for the teams that can, that know how to type in team 
chat or can get on a TeamSpeak or Ventrilo server or use the in-game voice chat system to to be able to collaborate and talk to one another to get the mission done. Um, because I don't think that elites should be a no-win scenario for a mission like Mirror Invasion, but the normal the normals, like you said, should be puggable. Where I don't have to find, I don't have to talk to anybody. I can just go in and blow things up. But for instance, like what you're saying, the difference between normal and elite is almost negligible, right? The re- number one, the rewards are negligible. I would say I'm going to go that far to say in Mirror Invasion that the, the rewards are negligible on the time spent, the investment, the return on investment, rather. So there needs to be a, a a bigger difference between the normal and the elite. There needs to be a greater reward difference, you know, because, like you said, the teams that do collaborate on on an elite should feel that their return on investment is much higher. Well, you know, I felt like in missions we have the option of normal, advanced, or elite. I feel for a lot of existing uh, PVE queues, the current elite could be marked as an advanced, and we could have a new elite that is actually a challenge on par with the type of gear and the quality of ships that we now have access to. Mm -hmm. So here's our first community question. Captains, with the introduction of more team-oriented play, how do you think this will affect your playtime in Star Trek Online? Will pugs soon be a thing of the past? Will players need to find themselves relying on a fleet or friends? Let us know your thoughts in the comment section for this episode on PriorityOnePodcast.com or in the forum post for this episode on the official Star Trek online forums. To all nearby vessels, the Undine have launched an attack on the Dyson Sphere. Immediate assistance is required. Repeat, the Undine have attacked. Staying on the topic of the Undine, we're going to jump to Season 9, Dev Blog number 6, and the announcement of a new Undine Battle Zone, a level 50 persistent zone where players are fighting the Undine for control over the Dyson Sphere. The best way to explain this is to say that they've taken the Voth Ground Battle Zone and put it in the atmosphere with your ships, which is awesome. There are nine points with varying objectives, and then once you've captured the nine points, you have to fight off three Undine Planet Killers. The Q&A section of the blog does address some key differences. For instance, there are no command credits to call in for reinforcements. Instead, it's static and happens automatically. If a zone is being overrun again by the Undine, all it takes is a single player to rush back and recapture the point. You know, in retrospect, I don't know that I really like those little command credits. Why do I need to pay for reinforcements? They should just come in. But anyway, I digress. This is really exciting because the uh, the Voth ground battle zone is the first time in a long time that many players willingly spent time on the ground, right? Not just for to get marks because Lordy knows that you can get a heck of a lot of marks on a run of the Voth battle zone. But it's fun. It's it's exciting. It's it's enjoyable. I I the time passes by and I don't notice that I've been playing for an hour because it's it's a really nice little adventure. And I haven't even done the little little parts like reviving one of the dead people on the floor or or hacking um hacking a squiddy. I'm just going to call them squiddies because they remind me of the Matrix squiddies. <laughs> Perfect. Based um, on that description, I don't think I've done that either. There are there there's are, a lot there of little all stuff these little around objectives. there. objectives. That nobody really does, but how you know? I haven't even explored all of that yet. Um, it's it's a fun adventure, and I'm glad to see that they're going to try to recreate that again in your ships because every, you know, let's face it, everybody loves ships. Everybody loves being in their ships for Star Trek Online. It's a a key selling point. 
I'm excited. I'm looking forward to it. I've actually uploaded Tribble. I'm going to start playing uh, Tribble a little bit, at least once, just so that we can talk about it on the show. Uh, <laughs> but because I really hate spoiling it for myself. So um, I have uploaded. I have loaded Tribble. I think I'll get. I'll finally get into Tribble when the reputation revamp hits because I'm going to want to see that. So what kind of rewards is this <clears throat> Undine Battle Zone going to give? Is it going to give Dilithium and... I'm guessing new kind of marks. Yeah, it's going to give you the dilithium. It's going to give you some dilithium, just like the uh, ground battle zone does. So it, yes, it's going to give you dilithium and undine marks every time you help in capturing a point, just like the the, the ground Voth battle zone does. And you'll also receive an isomorphic injection for every planet killer defeated, assuming that you've helped take the points in the zone. And I believe these isomorphic injectors are now part of the new reputation system. Yeah, they will be similar to the cybernetic yeah the borg cybernetic or the voth cybernetic implants and what are the borg ones called i forget borg neural implants yes and the the borg neural implants wow i can't believe i remembered that That was good speaking of changes to the reputation system jace why don't you talk to us about uh season uh, nine dev blogs number three and five sure these two dev blogs cover upcoming changes to the reputation system as a whole in season nine which the dyson reputation was basically the test bed for Oh, God, no, not no more changes. No, I can't take it anymore. It's okay, boo. Report to sickbay for immediate evaluation. This is going to be a, a sweeping overhaul to the previous reputation tracks. So our previous reputation tracks of Omega, Nukara, and New Romulus will be brought more in line with Dyson, but there will be some changes to that as well. First off, they're doing away with commendations. So... This is a good thing in my mind because it takes away one more form of currency or token that we have to worry about. So instead of needing one commendation per day to do the primary 2,500 XP project like we have in Dyson, you'll now just have a marks cost. And then instead of the secondary project like we currently have in the other three reputation systems, you'll have an hourly project like we've seen in the Dyson reputation, which will require 15 marks, for example. So instead of a commendation from your daily qualifying mission, whether it's a PVEQ or whether it's the space battle zone, you'll get a daily bonus mark pack, which will give you enough marks to do both of your daily, uh, both your daily and your hourly project. Holy crap. Let me get this straight. They've removed a currency and are you using the already existing currency? Correct. Woohoo! <laughs> right. So I'm a fan of that change. Because you can still accumulate the marks in normal way and apply them to whatever projects you want. You'll just get bonus marks once per day for the qualifying mission that is equivalent to the missions that would have given commendations in Dyson. All right, I can dig that. I can dig that. That that I appreciate because, you know, you had to get marks and then you had to get a commendation. And it, it was just it, it, the less currencies there are, the easier it is to digest. So we all need to use up our commendations if we if we haven't already. There will be a project to convert your commendations into marks if you have any remaining when the system goes live. Oh, goody. Okay. So they did take that into consideration. Now, all the reputations that exist will have their large and small XP projects replaced with a daily and hourly XP project that will just take marks, expertise, and energy credits. No more hunting down what planet has the best price on this commendation or that, buying five stacks of hypos or power cells and totally cluttering up your inventory. So that's another cleanup. Oh, that's great. 
at any given time, it seems like all my characters have about half their inventory filled with that stuff until they're done all their reputation. So that's a big quality of life improvement right there in its own right. Yes. There is a change to the hourly projects. Currently, as they exist on the dice and reputation, they can be done infinitely. You could do it 24 times a day if you had the, the time and the patience and the marks. That allowed some players to finish the entire Tier 5 reputation in a much shorter period of time than was intended, which we mentioned a couple episodes ago was something they were examining. So now the hourly XP projects can be run a handful of times per day. They're still balancing exactly how many times. And once you meet that limit, it'll be replaced with an hourly project that instead yields bonus dilithium instead of further rep. And there's no limit on how many times you can rerun it for dilithium. Okay. So I'm guessing it'll probably be in the three to five times range you can do it per day. That's just my best guess, because that would allow you to still get as much reputation per day as you could under the old system, and maybe a little bonus if you're really dedicated on top of that. I never, I if anything, I would just, in the Dyson, I don't think I even did the hourly. I was never religious about it, at least. No. No, I didn't do it either, because it was, you got so much more bang for your buck if you did the daily one. Right. It was less cost efficient, but it let you speed up your progress. And some people loved it, some people didn't do it at all. Uh, every reputation now will give out the reward packs when you slot a project and fill it up, just like Dyson does, which will be goodies that will be found within that reputation's Dilithium stores. Uh, also, the Dilithium store unlocks will just get unlocked automatically at the appropriate tier. You won't have to run projects for them. They're going to do away with Mark 10 and 11 gear. Everything that is going to come from reputation projects is going to be Mark 12, very rare gear. Cool. Again, bring it in line with Dyson. Also, the Nukara space set currently costs more than the other sets. That's going to be brought down from 900 to 750. Uh, the rep projects to actually upgrade the tiers will only cost five marks in five seconds instead of 10 to 50 marks in 15 minutes. Costume unlocks are only going to cost five marks. Some of the older item sets are actually going to be boosted to be more in line because they get underused, like new car space set, Romulan and Riemann sets are all being upgraded to be more comparable to your other Mark 12 space sets. So overall, I'm pretty excited. So moving on to Devlog 5, this is changes to reputation powers. So currently, at every tier, you get to choose one of two different passive abilities, and then you unlock an active ability at tier 5. The dev's concern is that now as we go into our fifth reputation with undoubtedly more on the horizon, it's starting to be a balance issue. So a new level 50 and someone who has been a dedicated player and maxed all their reputations are getting more and more disparity in their power level. Because currently, you if you've completed all four reputations, you have four extra active powers and 16 passive abilities. Right. Four active and sixteen from all the all the reputation projects, if you get everything, it's four active power, sixteen passive. Right. And so their concern is that now you'd be getting another four passive and one active from Undine, and then more after right. that, and more after that. And it's gonna be harder and harder for them to come up with new powers to add to that system that don't unbalance in combination with everything else that already exists. And I remember too, another thing that they had pointed out was that uh, an entry-level player that's just starting their reputation versus a player that if, if they were to continue going on this path where you just kept adding and adding these powers, the the chasm between an entry-level player and, and an end-game player 
would just be too too wide, right? It, the the entry level player would just be like, well, to heck with this, I quit. Right. For those who have been doing MMOs for a long time, I would see it as similar to someone in back in EQ who was new to max level versus someone who had a hundred alternate advancement points like there was no comparison it was like you were a higher level character for all intents and purposes you had abilities that they couldn't even touch and that's what they said that it's not infinitely scalable right now you eventually have 200 reputation powers so now they're going to rename the reputation powers to reputation traits and instead of having to choose permanently at each tier which of the two you get each tier you unlock two that you can slot and you will have four slots for active four slot for passive ground and four slot for passive space powers and you can change them on the fly no kind of respect token or, or zen payment needed so you can customize your loadout of passive space and ground abilities and eventually active abilities when we have more than four we'll get access to the fifth one from the undine and customize it based on your ship your loadout who you're going to be flying against pvp versus pve so the four active, it's not four active space, four active ground. It's going, to, it's just four active powers. Right. Were there any active ground powers at all, ever in the reputation? Not that I remember. The, the right? Omega is a ground power. The Nano okay. Cloud. Hmm. I don't know that I like four. Okay. And so the Undine, all right, all right, I like that idea. The Undine Tier Five power is a ground power, also. Okay. So I, I okay. I can, I can follow that move. I can, and I understand why, and I get it, and. I think that's a that's a fair compromise. So you'll have four passives on the ground, four passes passives in space that are swappable, mm-hmm. right? Depending on your enemy, like you explained. But my concern then would be the four, just the four active powers. As it stands right now, how many active powers could you have? Well, right now there are four, so we wouldn't really be seeing a reduction in power from that. Oh uh, yeah, right. Okay. And it's yeah, how many how many are space versus ground? Do you remember the, the active powers? Right yeah. now it's two and two. Oh, all right. I think I see this uh, as a concession I'd on like the to... active powers to the fact that we're definitely losing some power in a sense. Currently, we can have eight passive ground and eight passive space abilities, and we're only going to be able to have four. I think they're yeah. taking the edge off of that reduction by until they add more active powers, we can still have all of those. I think they should probably make the four active to six i have already seen some suggestions about increasing the cap um, one person on the uh sto subreddit actually a couple people said this it may be that a new, new holding may have an option to unlock a fifth slot for one or all of these mm, similar to how we have okay. the active duty doff slot that we can buy right right, right. so that's a possibility that they could work in I should also mention okay. that while we will only be able to have four passive ground and four passive space abilities, they are buffing virtually all of the abilities and making some modifications to them. So while we will only have four at any given time, each individual one should be a bit more potent or a bit more broadly useful than it was before. And those changes right, are listed up, in depth in the dev blog. Right. They're, they're doing a pass uh, over the current traits as mm-hmm. they are. Okay. All right. I can. Okay. I understand now. I see it. I was hoping to get into triple to to better wrap my head around it, but uh, I I can dig it. I think I can dig it. I think it's a it's a fair compromise considering the concern that there would be as the as more reputation systems are introduced into Star Trek Online. 
and you know, I, I hit level 50 and I want to be an end game player. But then, you know, there's my buddy who got me into the game. He's level 52, but he's way more powerful than I mm-hmm. am. I mean, ju- I'm, I'm experiencing that right now. I'm, I, I'm re-leveling, not re-leveling, but I'm, I'm maxing out my original character, my join trail that I got from pre-launch. And the, the difference I'm experiencing between my quote unquote main tune, my liberated Borg, versus this joint trill who I hadn't shown love to in, in years is unbelievable. But they're both level 50, mm-hmm. and they both have the exact same gear. But it's but those traits, boy, do they make a difference. Those sets, boy, do they make a difference. For sure. Yeah. I think the community will definitely see this as a nerf, but I think yeah. that the biggest challenge is for the devs to continue coming up with interesting and useful enough passive and active powers that we don't just fall into a static, okay, well, here are the four best ones statistically mm-hmm. or something like that. And you really only use any other ones for edge scenarios or for fun, you know, for flavor, just because you don't care. And it's nice that they're not going to charge you to, you know, swap out those powers. Yeah, that's, that's huge. That's a nice touch because, I'm yeah, that would that would have not been good. I'm sure that somebody in a meeting said, well, should we charge them to change powers? Uh, I'm sure somebody somewhere said that, uh, and I'm glad that they <laughs> they nixed that idea because that would have been bad. That would have been bad. So, captains, we want to know your thoughts on the changes to the reputation system. Do you th- uh, particularly? Well, we have two things to talk about: is how you progress to the reputation system. Let us know what you think about that, as well as the changes to how captains can slot their passive and active powers. Do you think it's a fair compromise to help mitigate any issues that there might be for players that just reach endgame versus players who've been at endgame for quite some time? Let us know your thoughts in the comment section for this episode on PriorityOnePodcast.com or in the Star Trek Online forum post for this episode on the official Star Trek forums. All right, Cookie, some changes have been coming, uh, trickling down to Tribble that have gotten people very excited, right? Yes. Uh, Cryptic Jojing announced on the Tribble forums this week that they will not only be updating and improving Head Shape 2 and Standard Complexion 2, but he also announced that coming to Tribble very soon will be three new head shapes and three new complexions for both male and female human-like species. This is to allow for a more ethnic diversity. Yes, porque tú sabes, tú sabes que yo necesito mi el cabezón mía. Necesito que, está, necesito que el cabezón mía sea un poquito más grande. Porque tú sabes, soy cubano, chico. Okay, now, okay, don't okay, get offensive now, okay. I'm not. I was talking fine. I was being You're nice. talking about the Borg? <laughs> okay. Are <they> Swedish? <laughs> this will not change your current character's features, but it just gives you more options if you choose to do so. They posted a link to some examples on the forum post, and they do look pretty good. For the males, the Humanoid 3 looks like you could make your own Dr. Cooper from A Step Between Stars. I don't know if anyone would want to do that, but you could. Humanoid 4 could be used to recreate a Tuvok lookalike, and you could do a lot with the Humanoid 5 as well, as that seems to be an Asian ethnicity. The females have the same ethnic choices as their male counterparts, and they are just adorable. I think one of them has freckles. Little redhead, <laughs> so cute. Are you gonna go back and redo? I, I'm. I actually might go back and redo my head for my characters. If they ever give more nose choices, I will definitely put a bump in my nose. But as far as it looks right now, it doesn't look like that's 
happening. I tried really hard to make my characters look like me. And it does. Yours does. Well, the one that I saw. I don't know about your other one. Well, Captains, that wraps up Star Trek Online news for this week. Let's open up a subspace channel to Chivalry Beam for this week's Foundry Review. Chivalry being here with the Foundry Officer Report, this time about Once Upon a Time by Zeros Amera. This is part one of a series. Once Upon a Time features time travel, ground and space combat, and the threads of a plot that stitch it all together. The mission begins with a call to investigate an anomaly which sucks you through time. I was pleasantly surprised at how the plot kicks off. It takes a bit of a turn from what one might expect from a time travel mission, and it's one of the best features of the story. The space and ground combat is quick and not difficult. Adjust your difficulty for more of a challenge. On normal, it's a casual run and gun for a tricked out away team. The plot overall is enough to tie the sections of the mission together. It wraps up nicely in about 20 to 30 minutes. It didn't feel too short or too long for the scope of the mission. When it ends, however, there is no hook to play the next mission. I have no reason to not want to play it, as I liked part 1, but a little hint at part 2 would make it that much more likely to be grabbed right away. In the future, however, there is a much wanted feature for the Foundry that would let an author automatically give the next mission out when you are playing a campaign. In the meantime, let's open hailing frequencies and see what's in time. Message coming in, sir. Hailing frequencies. Open. See, we are getting to know each other. All right, Captain, so we're at that part of the show where we open hailing frequencies for your incoming messages. Let's remind ourselves of what last week's community questions were. Out of all the announced upcoming Season 9 content, whether from the dev blogs or triple patches, what are you most excited about? Will you be playing with the new systems, checking out the PvE queues or battles? Or do you prefer to wait until the content hits holodeck and it's officially part of the storyline. Let's find out what you had to say. So Ward Callis commented via PriorityOnePodcast.com, I was thinking about risk. What if at death you have a 66% chance one of your active DOFs, ground and or space, goes to the sick bay for 20 hours? It would be random as to which one. Even more, at a 15% chance, three to five random DOFs go to sick bay for three days. Ooh, that one's pretty rough. Even the 20-hour one is pretty rough. If anything, if one of your DOFs get injured, maybe that's something that you'd have to go to a star base and have to have a specialist look at, right? Like, if there were sometimes injuries would be so severe that a starship doctor just couldn't help. They needed a larger, more advanced hospital. I think that idea is on the right track, on the yeah, right think, track of something. I think a lot more people would worry about not dying if that was the case. Right. I think the biggest downside there is it would just lead to people switching characters or something because your active duty DOFs are a big part of your build at this point. They radically change some of the powers in the game in some cases. So, I mean, if that happened to me, I would probably log out. <laughs> On PriorityOnePodcast.com, the Grand Negus writes, Regarding the whole risk of loss topic, my response has always been the same. You have complete control over what penalty you suffer. If you want to lose a piece of gear or a ship or even your character when you die, then do it yourself. But if you lack the will to follow through and delete your own stuff, then that proves you don't really want that kind of system. And if you do, your personal preference shouldn't be forced on everyone else. Sanuk Skyrat answers our community question via PriorityOnePodcast.com. No! 
Bad! I hate the idea of losing things. I've already spent so much time getting the good gear and EC. It all sounds good when you're winning. Trouble is, when you're losing and lose all of it, some of those doffs are really hard to get. Looking at you, Romulans, any form of risk just equals punishment. I fear such changes would make Star Trek less Trek and more elite with a side <laughs> dish of Hulk rage. <laughs> this is why I assigned you to this one, Elijah. Yeah, yeah. So, um, okay, so you don't lose your awesome Dyson deflector, but it should get damaged where you have to go somewhere and get it fixed. I wouldn't have a problem with a durability type system in the game. I just think that those type of systems are really just a money sink in most games or a time sink. Mm -hmm. And I mean, we have a lot of those, so I don't know. Uh, something would have to be rebalanced if, if they put in a money sink like durability, like maybe reduce the costs of something else. Kui writes via PriorityOnePodcast.com, Ship damage isn't as critical in the long run, but crew losses should be more critical and affect combat power adversely. But crew loss can affect the situation in a right here, right now effect. Players should find themselves with a need to flee battle due to accumulated loss of combat power due to crew losses and its effect on combat power. Basically, if you've bitten off more than you can chew, you run away, perhaps even being pursued by the enemy until you can find help or a safe haven. Yeah, I don't pay any attention to the crew. I just don't. Do you guys? I don't know. No, I don't pay attention. We had this discussion on the show yeah. several episodes ago. It was about a little that, while ago. The point of the, of the crew system. I think it was because Jeremy had posed the question on the forums, you know, what if we just got rid of it? And nobody would notice, nobody, you know, because it, it really just does not affect your combat as much as it should, right? Your crew is the backbone of your ship. It doesn't matter what kind of ship you've got. If your crew is all dead, then you should suffer for that. Maybe the regen for the crew should be slower and its impact greater. Right, so we would feel okay. No, I crap. All my crew's dying off. I need to do something like run away or stay more attentive to that kinetic damage coming in. You know, yeah. even if your off abilities were weakened significantly, if you had less crew and they were a lot stronger, if you had a full crew, I mean, even if that was the case, that would be at least a significant impact. At its core of it, there's just no risk, right? What, what you're saying is that. I can go in, and I do not care whether or not... I, I mean, it's an inconvenience if I die, but it's just an... In, that's it. That's all it is. It's an inconvenience. There's no risk. There's no, oh my god, I can't die on this infected space elite because I'm going to run the risk of losing something. There's just no strategy to it. You go in, and you try to blow things up. Even in the Mirror Invasion event, yeah, there's a little bit more collaboration, but that's more on the team, right? That requires your cruiser to drop the interact time for the power transfer satellites. But if I die, all right, so what? I just respawn. I use my equipment to heal whatever damage or, or debuff that I have, and it takes two seconds. I want to go into a battle and say, damn, I really don't want to die right now. Yeah. I don't want to lose my stuff, though, either. On PriorityOnePodcast.com, Adam Lachine writes, There is more than enough risk in game as is. I play to get away from reality and have some fun. Risk may be fine in PvP, but not PvE. That's a good point. I mean, ultimately, it's really about the balance. I don't want an Eve experience here, right? No, far uh, from I think it. I mentioned, yeah, I, I do not want that. I do not want that because, like I mentioned in the editorial, is that, yeah, we play that game already, and it's called Life. I don't want to lose my stuff, but I do want to feel attached to it. I want to feel an ongoing investment in the gear that I have on. Sure, and it's tough right? for immersion because when, if you're starting to take damage, the strategy is, oh, well, let me make sure I get close to the enemy ship so my warp core breach kills them. Right. You know, that doesn't make any sense. On the Star Trek Online forum post for this episode, Ukami87 writes, 
As far as risk goes in game, well, it would take some reworking, but I'd love to see the crew system adapted to replace the current death penalty. Dead crew stay dead and have to be replaced at a space dock with some minigames. Remove boff cooldowns and tie them to the crew system. The more crew you have, the more abilities you can use. If your crew dies, so does your ability to use boff powers. Make it feel like I'm working with a team and not just a computer with set timers in its program. That's great. That's exactly what we said just five seconds ago. Yeah, that's a pretty good and idea. it ties it up very, very nicely. The only that's, a, that's a really good idea. It would be nice if your crew didn't die so easily also because they just died Yeah, so that's fast. what I was going to say. One quantum torpedo and half your crew's dead. It's right. absurd. Lance Aria commented via PriorityOnePodcast.com, If there was boff disabling, it would affect more pain on people with limited boff roster space, especially free-to-players. I think that's a great point there. Right now, the current penalties affect other players more than the player themselves. How many times have you gone into an ESTF and seen someone with stacks of the little yellow and red debuffs? They explode if a sphere turns funny, which makes it hard on the other four players. It's worse when multiple people in the group have the problem. It's a system that's not easily explained, and some people have no idea it's there till they're 50 and trying elite comment. And on the other community question, yes, I will be playing on triple. I am very proud of my crash test triple title. Yeah, he's right about that. Especially in pugs, you sometimes see the folks who have like 14 debuffs on them because they don't even know how to repair their ship. They don't know that it's even a thing. Or they don't care because the effects are minimal and they can still complete the content. On the Star Trek online forum post for this episode, Orangitis writes, The feature I'm looking forward to the most is that kit revamp. I loves me some customization. And then he answers the question, What risks are you willing to face as a Star Trek captain? I'd be perfectly happy with a 100% realistic Star Trek game. Holodeck malfunctions included. So, would be interesting. technically then, the server downtimes that we experienced are holodeck malfunctions. And so, <laughs> Orangitis, they are meeting your 100% expectations. It's a feature. Yes. It's a feature. <laughs> you know, it's funny. The holodeck's down. Yes. It's my immersion. No, yeah, we're trapped in the real world. <laughs> we're trapped in 21st century Earth. You know, it's funny what he says about a 100% realistic Star Trek game, because when you take the old tutorial into account, I don't know if it's the same because I haven't done the new one yet, but a friend of mine in real life were talking about this. We started out as red-shirted ensigns, tactical ensigns, during a Borg attack, and yet somehow we've survived. This is like fan fiction. (laughs) (laughs) They've changed it a little bit. You're a cadet like they were in the JJ, but it was fun. You should try it. Dan Moritz writes via Facebook, With regard to risk in STO, I propose that all queuable events have a third nightmare difficulty level added where there is no respawning or reviving. When a player dies, the team must carry on without them. I'd be fine with an option for something like that. Mm. I think that would be fun yeah, to as try. As it's an option. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Carmelo Nevis commented on the Facebook post for this episode, Thanks for the podcast. Really helps me with the game. What if when we repair our ships, there's a cooldown? That way we have to use one of our other ships, let's say for an hour or something like that. That's an idea. Yeah, again, it's not a bad idea, but I feel like I would just switch characters or log out. I have my main character with my main ship that I have invested ten times into than any of my others. There might be some way to do something like that, but I feel it would take the cheeks out of the seats, which is not what they're going for. Yeah, yeah, some people yeah. only have one character and one good ship. Yeah. That was me like a month ago. Yeah, you just you just uh, got <laughs> so. your second character up. Well, captains, each week our social media channels are busy with your thoughts, your opinions, and suggestions for the show. Please keep them coming. Reach out to us on facebook.com forward slash priority one podcast. 
follow us on Twitter at STO Priority One or shoot us an email to incoming at Priority One Podcast. Well, that wraps up episode 167 of Priority One Podcast. Remember, we record Thursday nights live on Trek Radio starting at around 10.30 p.m. Eastern Time and 7.30 p.m. Pacific Time. And you can subscribe by pointing your podcast catcher at feeds.priorityonepodcast.com. Captains, you know we love hearing from you. Let us know what you think of the show and submit your responses to our community question in the comments section on our site or on the Star Trek Online forum post for this episode. And now you can call us and leave us a message. Just visit PriorityOnePodcast.com and find out how. Stay in touch with us throughout the week by following our social media websites. Head over to Facebook.com forward slash PriorityOnePodcast and give us a like. Or check us out on Twitter via at STO Priority One. You can even join the Priority One Podcast chat in-game. Just type slash channel underscore join space Priority one, all one word. Captains, we want to thank you for your ongoing support of Priority One Podcast. You can continue to support Priority One with real-world donations by helping us reach our monthly financial goals. We are all volunteers, and we could use your help with purchasing new equipment, hosting fees, or to alleviate travel expenses as we cover conventions on location. We'd love to see you at the Star Trek Las Vegas convention. A very special thanks to everyone who has already contributed and continues to do so on a recurring basis. Without your ongoing support, we would not be able to bring you the content you've grown to enjoy from Priority One Podcast. And don't forget to tune in to Priority One Productions Guard Frequency Podcast at GuardFrequency.com. It's a pretty good show. You should check it out. The Priority One fleet is recruiting. If you're interested in joining, just shoot us an email with your at handle and we'll be sure to send you an invite. The email is incoming at PriorityOnePodcast.com. Thanks to the entire team behind Priority One Podcast, including this week's audio engineer, Lennon Rich. Don't forget to trek him out as one of the hosts of Guard Frequency at GuardFrequency.com. A big thanks to Chivalry Bean for this week's Foundry Officers Report. Thanks to the composer of our theme music, Chris Watts. Thanks to our syndication partners, Epic Gamer Radio, Subspace Radio, and Trek Radio. Special thanks to our sponsor, Sayulita.com. Most importantly, a big thanks to you, the Star Trek online community, and our listeners. Without your ongoing support, none of this would be possible. Red alert. Shields up. Ready weapons. Engage. Later, Chivalry Breen, Chivalry Breen would be uh, very polite, uh, Frost Warriors. Would they be fully functional? I hope so. Hashtag robot sex.
<laughs> I can't believe you let me say that. I um, it may not make it to the final no, show. No, I wouldn't but think so. We'll but see. Would you- I, you know, when I, I, I got nothing. <laughs> all right, all right. <laughs> you said duty. He's talking about like out. if you want to if you want to RP like when you die. Oh, uh, it's time to wake up. <laughs> Better get up. Well, if you hadn't called me in early. <laughs> Sweet dreams. Blooper. Oh, that's a good one. No other opinions. I'll move on. Queen. That you actually okay, no, actually you do bring up a good point. Um it is a money sink and if they did go that route, then yeah, they would certainly have to figure out a way to Maybe the maybe it becomes a reputation system, right? Maybe it becomes a, you know, the, the whatever half of the cost is for the current, like the EC see, value type that's of thing. Yeah, talk, that's why I didn't talk. I didn't talk because I knew that what I was going to come out was going to be garbage. That's why I didn't say anything. <laughs> Once upon a time features time travel, grounded space combat, and the threats of a plot that stitch it all together. <laughs> It wraps up nicely in about 20 to 30 minutes. Minutes? In about 20 to 30 minutes. Claw swipe attacks have been removed and visual language has also been improved. <laughs> that rhymed. I'm so good at poems. <laughs> oh my god. It's hard to hold back sometimes. <laughs> Lennon, that's not making it into the final show.